Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, we will be looking at Clotel by Williams Wells, William Wells Brown. Um, this book was published in 1853. It is the first uh, novel published by an African-American in the United States. Um, and he'd actually, Browns would later write the first play, um, published by, by an African-American. We'll look at that in, a, in another week or so. Um, but Clotel is often seen as his masterpiece. I think it's the most well-studied, uh, work. It's actually the piece that the Library of America builds their volume of Brown's, uh, works around, even though it's quite short. It's, it's only about 150 pages, uh, but it's certainly packs a lot of good commentary and some uh it's got some interesting stuff in it I, I think it really builds off of the narrative and some of the themes brown was focusing on the narrative but using fiction brown is able to have a little bit more freedom in how he kind of constructs these stories and and, and tells his tale now this book is very much uh, a mixture of polemics and commentary and politics and the story itself the story often seems to be secondary because it is uh pretty simple uh we're just dealing with a a, a woman Kerr, and her two daughters uh clotel and and althesa both and all three get sold off to different families so it basically allows brown to to tell three different stories about uh what happens to people after uh, enslavement, but he focuses on women. Of course, all three major characters are women, and so they all interact with marriage in very, very different ways. And that's really the thesis of this book. Um, so let's get right into it. Um, if you look at his chapter, his first chapter, called The Negro Sale, which is about the sale of these, he jumps right into it. He doesn't do much with the backdrop of their life. We get a little bit about Kerr. Now, Kerr is uh, the, you know, the slave of Thomas Jefferson and her two daughters are the daughters of the president in this sense. So now this of course is uh, reflecting the Sally Hemings story, but it's also very different uh, in that uh, what happens to these three women is not what happened to uh, the, the Hemings children. But nevertheless, uh, it's, you know, one, one theme that I guess Brown likes to focus on, he does it in his autobiography, his narrative, is the hypocrisy of, of, of the ruling class and their, the, the values they project, like the ideas of virtue projected by the American ruling class uh, are corrupted by the realities of slavery and most particularly in, in, in the sexual, in the realities of, of the sexuality uh, in intrinsic in American slavery, right? Because slave status was passed through the mother. So there was an incentive to, an e you know, economic and financial incentive to, to rape one's slaves above and beyond the, the again, hypocritical uh, juxtaposition of this attraction that 
white men had for black women and according to brown uh, particularly biracial women um, who are themselves of course products of of previous generations sexual violence um, and in many cases anyways in most uh, you know compared with the the ideology of morality right um, so that's what he's getting at here now Here's, so he starts out in the book, before getting into any of the story, he starts it up almost like a polemic, like an essay about American slavery, and he focuses on marriage. He writes, for instance, although marriage, as the above indicates, is a matter which the slaveholder do not think is of any importance or of any binding force with their slaves, yet it would be doing that degraded class an injustice not to acknowledge that many of them do regard it as a sacred obligation and show a willingness to obey the commands of God on this subject. Marriage is indeed the first and most important institution of human existence, the foundation of all civilization and culture, the root of church and state. It is the most intimate covenant of heart formed among mankind, and for many persons the only relation in which they feel the true sentiments of humanity. It gives scope for every human, for human virtue, since each of these develop from the love and confidence which here predominate. So after expressing this praise of marriage as a fundamental human institution, uh, he goes into how it's denied slaves um, by the system, by the institutions, and by masters uh, at, a, at an individual on an individual level. So what this then allows us to look at in the case of this novel is these three women all experience marriage in different ways and pairings in different ways whether it's relationships with with black men that aren't legitimized and not acknowledged by government in one case a woman is passing as a white free woman even though she's owned essentially by her husband um, and she's never freed, so when both her and her husband die, this is Althesa, one of the daughters of Kerr, this happens to her, their children then are instantly uh, enslaved by the estate and are brought back into, are put, put, put essentially into slavery, despite essentially living as, you know, being born socially as, 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 as white, you know, essentially as whites, right? Because her mother was passing, her father, her father was white. So that's so the the denial of proper marriage, the f denial of a lack of respect for that institution of marriage, I guess, is what leads to that tragedy, right? With uh, the other, uh, with Clotel herself, she has a daughter with her, or yeah, it's a daughter. It's another daughter, uh, Mary, with her master, and that master uh, ends up marrying a white woman, abandoning Clotel keeping her daughter, his daughter in slavery and selling Clotel off. She later escapes with the help of a black man. And there's a, a suggestion that there could have been a, a marriage there, but you know, they escape slavery. She goes back to the South to try to free her daughter and in doing so gets captured and ends up killing herself. So that's a different take on the tragedy of the denial of marriage. Had their relationship uh, been allowed to well, that's a weird one because uh, Althesa's husband does seem to really love her, right? It's, it seems Clotel's master is more using the relationship, you know, uh, and then abandoning Clotel when he no longer needs her. So that's a different case. But nevertheless, by by making, by not having 
a marriage, she's more easily victimized by her, her master, right? So th- those are the kind of stories we get in this this pretty compelling story. I think it's, it's nice. Uh, the problem with it, if there is one, is it does mix those polemics with the story. And if you just want a good ripping yarn, you're not going to get it here. You really are getting a political message loosely delivered. Uh, delivered loosely through the packaging of a story of a sentimental story about this family and these daughters and their relationships and the tragedies that befell them right these kinds of stories could be easily have told through slave narrative through sociological approaches to to american slavery but brown is trying to get at it through through uh through fiction and i think it's as a work of fiction it's of mixed success, I guess, but as a work of polemics, I think it's quite effective. Um, and it really does introduce these issues to the mind of the reader. Uh, many of these readers would have been white abolitionists, of course, who would have approved of the message and, and been concerned about the same things, but he's emphasizing things that often you heard from abolitionist women more, right? Like the, aren't I a woman, uh, from Sojourner Truth, that line, this idea that our womanhood is being denied to us by slavery, right? We're not able to be mothers. We're not able to uh, maintain our household. We're not able to be what the ideology of separate spheres demands of women to be, right? But she says, I, you know, but am I a woman? And so by kind of picking at the the hypocrisy of gender ideology, right, to, it became a very, very powerful message, right? Because people took that gender ideology very, very important. It was key to their identity and this is the social structure of, of white America at the time. So um, Brown is doing that kind of thing, and he, I think he's quite good at it. So as I'm saying, a lot of this is set up in Chapter 1 called uh, The Negro Sale. We see the splitting up of families. We see the importance of the color line, the, you know, the, the biracial uh, children of thomas jefferson um sexuality being a big part of it uh women being sold off for their for their attractiveness for their beauty um you know even young girls in the case of of these these women um he makes this point when he's talking about the value of clotel and the bidding on her and that they were you know it's like an auction um, of course and the salesperson is saying, well, her chastity of the girl is pure and she's never been under her, and she has never been from under her mother's care. She's a virtuous creature. And this raises the value when this sales pitch is made towards her. So the auctioneer is able to package Clotel and these other people that he's selling into what the buyer wants and then get the price raised up. Right. Very much like, uh, you know, used car salesmen. These were, of course, commodities. Uh, in the southern economy so he sums up on this he sums this up this way saying this was a southern auction at which the bones muscle sinew blood and nerve of a young lady of 16 were sold for 500 dollars. her moral character for 200 her improved intellect for 100 her christianity for 300 and her chastity and virtue for 400 dollars more and this too in a city thronged with churches whose tall spires look like so many signals pointing to heaven and whose ministers preach that slavery is a god-ordained institution what words can tell the inhumanity, the atrocity, and the immorality of that doctrine from which an exalted office commands such a such a crime to the favor of enlightened and Christian people? End quote. So Clotel sold for fifteen hundred, and that, and then he 
reminds us once again that this was the daughter of, of the president. And not just any president. The president who earlier in his life wrote the Declaration of Independence. Again, something that Brown always wants to remind us of. So um, from this point in the story, after the first chapter, we basically branch off. And for a few chapters, you'll follow one of the of sisters or be with Kerr. With the Kerr chapters, we don't see as much about Kerr. We see a lot about the family and religion becomes a major theme there because she's still to a preacher. And so there's like the, is it the sister, I think? And her husband is a little more critical of, of slavery. And so there's discussions about the morality of slavery given through um this family. So the Kerr chapters tell us a little bit more about this preacher and the hypocrisy of religion. And then we got the Clotel and Althesa chapters, which really speak to marriage in, in, in their own ways. So chapter two is called Going to the South. This chapter focuses on the domestic slave trade. Um, and we see uh, the people who bought Kerr and Althesa going to New Orleans. So again, the family is split up once again. Um, so Clotel was sold off to some other people right away. So she didn't go south with them, but those going to New Orleans, which was the biggest slave market in the domestic slave trade and where a lot of these uh, these kinds of tricks took place. Uh, I want to recommend a book called uh, The Slave Market. It's quite, a, quite old by now. It's probably 15 years old, but it's a really great work of scholarship, which focuses on the slave market in New Orleans. And it's, it's a straight up history book, but it really focus on things like the packaging of, of slaves, how they were dressed, how they were cleaned up, how they were told to present themselves in order to present themselves to pr prospective buyers, but also how there was agency in this to a certain degree because uh, people for sale could uh, present themselves in certain ways to cruel masters or to people that appeared to be cruel to them. So they might appear more resistant to try to get bought by people who might be more kind uh as kind as one can be in this in the institution of slavery right you're you're negotiating for the best of of these horrible outcomes but there was some agency and he and the author I forget his name but he talks about this it's, it's a really good book it's not very long but i think it does a really good job of showing uh the commodification of these people and and how it was an act of of consumption um anyways the next chapter is called uh the negro chase uh, which follows Kerr going to Nactes. Um, but really the emphasis is on, on the, the, the people who try to catch runaways. Uh, so there's some backstory. There's like a side story, which Brown uses to talk about this. But the really chilling part of this is he pulls, apparently from life, I don't think they're made up. They might be, but I think they're just pulled from newspapers, is ads for these so-called Negro hunters. These were people who you know, advertised their services as people who catch runaways and you had very modern kind of marketing techniques here where they would talk about their equipment the dogs they had how effective they were they would give like money back guarantees in some cases it's really chilling stuff uh, going on in that chapter uh, and then it culminates in a discussion of the killing of a runaway slave in front of a, of a bunch of other enslaved men and women as kind of a, a symbol and, and we know this kind of thing happened. And, he, and Brown even says this happened. And, and this is also being drawn from life. So again, the fiction in this book, it's very, very shallow, I, I think. 
you don't have to scratch far into the surface to see this is all being drawn from his own experiences, things he witnessed in slavery, and things he learned about, uh, you know, as an abolitionist speaker and writer. Um, okay, um, next we have chapter four. Where is it? Sorry. Oh, sorry, it's called The Quadroon's Home, and this is kind of following Clotel, and she's purchased by someone named Horatio Green. Uh, and Horatio seems to love Clotel, but, and basically starts a relationship with her, but they can't be a family, right? It's it's not, you know, Green's a more complicated figure, I think, than Althesa, the person that Althesa ends up owned by, because that seems to be a more loving relationship. She allows, he allows her to pass as white, and they can live a essentially on the surface at least as a married couple green seems to have this affection and attraction towards clotel but at the same time is not willing to take that step to actually you know but she can't provide a, a family for him which is what he wants right and this chapter really gets into a little bit the strategies that that black women faced and we imagine that this is partially the strategy f that things that went in the head of someone like sally hemmings um Quote, for herself, she cared but little, for she had found a sheltered home in Horatio's heart, which the world might ridicule, but had no power to profane. And when she looked at her beloved Mary, that's their daughter, and reflected upon the unavoidable and dangerous position which the tyranny of society had awarded her, her soul was filled with anguish. The rare loveliness of the child increased daily, and it was evidently ripening into the most marvelous beauty. The father seemed to rejoice in it with unmingled pride, and in the deep tenderness of the mother's eyes there was an undwelling sadness that spoke of anxious thoughts and fearful foreboding clotel now urged horatio to remove to france or england where both her and her child would be free and where color was not a crime end quote um now if you know the story of sally hemmings uh, you know she goes to france with with thomas jefferson and we don't quite know what exactly was negotiated there but she was free he had to pay her wages while she was there um, but when she, she returned as a slave, she, you know, so was that a negotiated thing? Did Jefferson use force? You know, what was done? I would, I'll give it to experts to, to speak to what actually happened there. But I'm saying there's, there's this use of this affection, at least apparent affection as a strategy. Um, so I think that's some, some interesting stuff, uh, going on in this, this chapter. Um, one thing to say about the, also about this book, all these chapters are really, really short. There's something like 30 some chapters in the book and and most are just a few pages. Um, anyways. So next chapter, we have chapter five, The Slave Market, which is about New Orleans. So uh, this is Althesa um, being sold in in New Orleans. So her original purchaser i think this yeah this is the guy from vermont so she's bought by someone from vermont and and she, he doesn't really want a slave but the wife his wife wants a slave right uh wants like a servant a maid so that's what she's bought for so she's in a way got the best job currents of like a domestic servant in in a household um Althesa, you know, she's not going to, on the surface, be a target of the sexual gaze of her master in the, quite the same way as, as, as Clotel is, it seems. 
But anyways, what goes through all this chapter is the thing I was just talking about, this commodification of people, the packaging of them, the the subtle negotiations going on. And in just three pages, he, he packs in a lot of this stuff going on there, the examinations, right? The, the way these slaves were uh, investigated and interrogated, asked about how often they ran away, where, where buyers tried to gauge their, you know, how likely they'd be to resist or how subservient they'd be, you know, or, and then it's a negotiation too between the buyer and the seller who the seller is trying to get the highest price and therefore packaging these enslaved men and women in such a way to increase their value. And then you got the buyers trying to see through that, right? A lot of that's packed up in this, this, this itty bitty chapter. Um, then we have the religious teacher. Um, so there's a lot of chapters about religion here, and I may not talk about each one individually, but a lot of it has to do with uh, this guy Peck, who buys Currer, and the religious justification for slavery. That's the emphasis here, the religious teacher, that the religion is taught through by whites, largely, to slaves to defend the institution of slavery itself. Right? There's even a little catechism we're given in... Is it in this chapter? It's, yeah, it's in this chapter. We get a little catechism that they're taught. Uh, for instance, question, if the servant professes to be a Christian, ought he not to be as a Christian servant? An example to all their servants of love and obedience to his master. Answer, yes. Question, and should his master be a Christian also? Ought he not on that account especially to love and obey him? Answer, yes. Question, but suppose the master is hard to please and threatens and punishes more than he ought. What is the servant to do? Answer, do his best to please him. End quote. So he, we get this whole a whole page of this catechism that basically, you know, is what slaves were taught um, about Christianity. Now, of course, there was the underground religion of enslaved people, uh, you know, the kind of thing taught by Nat Turner, perhaps, you know, in the slave quarters. A very different narrative of Christianity, which, of course, becomes very, very important uh, as a survival technique, as something that's going to carry on after slavery ends in the creation of institutions of black Christianity. All right. Uh, chapter seven, the poor whites. Ooh, yeah. So uh, Brown is really interested in the poor whites. He's very, very uh, focused on them in this book and in the narrative, both as their ignorance, their poverty, Slavery itself causing the ignorance, not just among black people, but among whites is, is a point Brown wants to make here. Um, you know, he, he mentions this guy Huckleby is the guy's name, and he's an example of the poor white overseer who has some seemingly conflicted views about slavery, but also knows that overseer is like one of the best jobs someone like him will get. It gives him a little power and how race then becomes a way of, of, of fracturing class solidarity. I don't think Brown goes that far. That's more of a modern interpretation of, of this. But, you know, it's certainly it's something that people have talked about quite a lot in the years since the end of slavery of, of how, and, and throughout the Southern working class history, how race was able to break up class solidarity. And we see a bit of it here. But there's some hope through this character of Huckleby and some other of these poor whites that, you know, they, they they're pop, maybe they would be able to see slavery in a more critical light but they just didn't really have the space or opportunity to to go that far in their thinking. Um, what else do we got here? Um, 
Yeah, it's it's basically he's making the case that people become overseers because of ignorance and, and inequality. So it's it's an important argument. It doesn't go as far as maybe some other writers would, but I think it's something that Brown is somewhat sympathetic to. We saw a bit of this in his narrative, go to my last episode, where I talk a little bit about that. Um, then we have the separation. So the, chapter 8, the separation. Now this returns us to Clotel's uh, situation, her her. Basically, not her marriage to Horatio, her master, but her master's. Um, and, of course, she has, they have a kid together, right? But the master decides to marry, right? So this becomes a dreaded day for Clotel's life where she knows she's going to be sold off or, or, or pushed into a different role. Uh, eventually, she just becomes abandoned. The daughter, Mary, remains a slave, but Clotel becomes, uh, becomes abandoned and sold off. So another family separation talked about in, in pretty brutal terms. So next we have chapter nine called The Man of Honor, which focuses on Althea's owner, um, James Crawford. Now he's called a man of honor because he's, he's not presented as an oppressive slave owner. In fact, Althea's not having a relationship with her master. Um, but he even says... Um, James Crawford, the preacher of Althesa, was from the Green Mountains of Vermont, and his feelings were opposed to the holding of slaves, but his young wife persuaded him into the idea that it was no worse to own a slave than to hire one and pay money to the other, end quote. So this is um, probably true. I mean, if you were going to get a servant in the South, there probably would have been a slave, just you're paying wages to someone else. So anyways, he talks him into it. She talks him into it. Now, this Crawford guy doesn't keep her very long. She's eventually sold off to this Dr. Morton. And Dr. Morton is going to be the one who eventually, you know, begins this relationship with her where so she can pass as white. And eventually the hope is that they can get married. But they die before that happens. So really, this little episode with this Mr. James Crawford is just to get us to this other Vermonter, it turns out, it's another Vermonter, this Dr. Morton. So anyways, that's this Man of Honor chapter. Now, the key thing is, I think it's Morton, maybe not uh, maybe not Crawford, but he tries to buy Kerr uh, from Mr. this Mr. Peck, this preacher, uh, and it doesn't work. He won't sell. All right. And then we go to chapter 10 called The Young Christian, which focuses, again, on Peck and the hypocrisy of of Christian slavery. Um, quote, we're introduced to Georgina, who is uh, Peck's daughter. And here's what Brown writes. Georgina's first object, however, was to awaken in Carlton's breast a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The young man had often said under the sound of the gospel with perfect indifference. He had heard men talk who had grown gray bending over the scripture and their conversation had passed by him unheeded. But when a young girl, much younger than himself, reasoned to him in the innocent and persuasive manner which women want to use when she has entered in with the whole soul upon an object, it was too much for his stout heart, and he yielded. Her next aim was to vindicate the Bible from sustaining the monstrous institution of slavery, end quote. So Georgina is, I guess she's kind of the hope of the next generation. Peck is a basically a cruel and indifferent master using Christianity falsely and Georgina is using that more authentically uh, to come to the conclusion that slavery is wrong which is of course what Brown wants us to conclude um, so she's trying to convince this young man 
who's going to be her husband, I guess, uh, Carlton, to to have that view of slavery, the anti-slavery Christian position. Um, but that's the focus of this chapter. Um, we get more on Carlton, Georgina, and Mr. Peck Kerr's, uh, you know, Mr. Peck Kerr's owner in the next chapter called The Parson Poet. Um, but we also get a little bit more on the, the brutality of slavery. We're seeing, like, he like throws in more ads. Before it was ads for these so-called Negro hunters. This was an ad for purchasing slaves with illnesses. So it's a doctor wanting to buy sick and dying slaves, paying, I guess, less than their full value. But he's, I think the ad says paying a reasonable amount for slaves that are probably going to die. So diseases can be, they can be like studied for diseases. It's pretty horrific stuff. Um, or sometimes even murdered, killed by doctors, essentially through malpractice, but to, to discover, basically experimenting on them. And it's uh, something that I think is worthy of a little bit more study because we, of course, know about the, the syphilis experiments in Tuskegee. You know, we, there is that history of experimentation on African-Americans in the Jim Crow era. And, of course, there's a longer history, you know, in, world, in the world of other social others, oppressed minority populations being used for medical experiments. Um, but this is a pretty brutal ex, you know, exposure. And so if someone were to study the slavery in the medical profession, that might be a really, maybe it's already been written, but it seems it could be a really, really powerful book. Um, something I didn't, I didn't know much about until I, or didn't think much about until I read this. But apparently it happened, if we take Brown's word for it. Um, next, we have a night in the Parsons kitchen, which allows us to get a window into Kerr's, um, I guess, life uh, as a slave where she works in the kitchen. So she's like the chief of the kitchen. There's also Sam, who's the, like the head. There's like the cook. Um, and I guess Sam, who's like the head of this slave staff, staff used to his master used to be a doctor so he has a little bit of medical knowledge and so what you kind of learn about this is just how skilled these people are how their skills are used by masters very consciously they're not just thrown in the fields and and wasted they're they're thought through what their role on the plantation would be uh, and anyways it's, it's a good chapter kind of getting more at the the you know the underclass of the plantation which for the Peck chapters, hasn't been the focus of, of Brown's narrative. Chapter 13, we're still with Peck in a chapter called The Slave Hunting Parson, which shows him going on a slave hunt. Uh, it's a specifically a slave hunt in which, which slaves died. Um, so it's the, about the cruelty of Peck um, and the lack of religious honesty in the Deep South. Uh, so Mr. Peck, it's revealed, keeps these bloodhounds. And then when it's asked, I think it's Georgina tells the story about how Peck participated in slave hunts in the past. And that's the second one we've seen in this, this short novel already. Next, a free woman reduced to slavery. Um, so this chapter focuses on Althesa, um, who, who is now essentially trying to pass as white, uh, trying to marry this Henry Morton, this Dr. Morton. But they run into a, a woman, Salome Miller, who is a free woman who gets enslaved and we get her story. 
So it's like if you know the Samuel Northrup story, 12 Years a Slave, that's a famous slave narrative, um, then you can know this happened. This was not an a f- uncommon thing where free people, for whatever reason, were deemed runaway slaves, were re-enslaved, and there was a profit motive in people just you know, take, taking these and reselling these, these people into slavery. Or in this case, she was born free. But Althesa, with the help of Dr. Morton, helps free her. So we see Althesa stepping up and doing something to undermine the institution of slavery, helping bring this woman, Salome Miller, back to her proper state of freedom, even though it's denied her. She's still, remember, Althesa is still a slave. She was purchased by the man that she hopes to make her her husband. Not, Not an entirely uncommon thing for husbands to own their wives. I mean, it was fairly common for free blacks to purchase their wives because it was a way of getting their loved ones out of slavery. Um, it was legally easier in many cases to do that than to get a manumission. Then we got chapter 14, which is the death of the parson. So, um, sorry, I skipped a ch- chapter. Chapter 15, today a mistress, tomorrow a slave. So this is about uh, Clotel, um, and who was a mistress and, and was eventually sold off and became a slave. So we get a little bit more here about the tensions between Clotel and Horatio's Green's wife and why she ends up, why Clotel ends up being sold off. I guess I got ahead of myself before saying she was sold off. It actually happens in this chapter, and she's, she's sold to some other um, owners. We got a little bit more on the color line here, Clotel being valuable due to her attractiveness, due to her, her beauty, and being light-skinned. So, as always, the color line comes again and again in these, these, these narratives, especially the way Brown tells it and talks about it. Um, there's even here the comparison between slavery and the working class, and, and I think Brown wants to use sexuality as a way of exposing this argument that was bandied about by defenders of slavery that, well, yeah, slaves have it rough, but... But, you know, working class in England have it even worse. And, of course, abolitionists took this argument seriously enough that it comes up a lot. And they talk about it and debunk it a lot. Um, Here's what Brown writes on this. The fairness of Clotel's complexion was regarded with envy as well by the other servants as, as by the mistress herself. This is one of the hard features of slavery. Today a woman is mistress of her own cottage. Tomorrow she is sold to one who aims to make her life as intolerable as possible. And be it remembered that the house servant has the best situation which a slave can occupy. Some American writers have tried to make the world believe that the condition of the laboring class of England is as bad as the slaves of the United States. The English laborer may be oppressed. He may be cheated, defrauded, swindled, and even starved, but he is not slavery under which he groans. He cannot be sold. In point of law, he is equal to the prime minister. End quote. So that's, uh, again, this is a, this is brought up in a lot of this anti-slavery writing because it's such a common and, and frankly, fairly effective, very convincing argument to some people. Uh, you still hear people talk about it today uh, as they try to uh, undermine the brutality of American slavery. Southern apologists, you know, neo-Confederates and these types. All right. So next we get to the death of the parson. So Mr. Peck dies, um, and the slaves are indifferent. That's the point of this chapter, which is, again, it's another 
effort by Brown to expose an argument that was used in defense of slavery, that being that slaves love their masters. Well, if they love their masters, they wouldn't be indifferent when they die. Um, and in this case, that's what happens. Now, this opens up a, a plot that's going to happen. Now, Kerr is not going to live long enough to see this, but uh, Georgina is going to want to free the slaves that she inherits. And so there are, there, that's going to be one path we see. Maybe Brown here is being very hopeful that the younger generation will abandon slavery. And it's maybe once the older generation dies, it's, you still have people, you know, this is a common thing you hear when people talk about social change. It's like when those boomers die, finally the millennials will have power and they'll be able to implement reforms or, you know, we'll see. Right. But it's been talk. This has been talked about before. And I think there's a bit of that here. It's not really clearly laid out, but I wonder if, if, through the story of these women, there are so many people who are, who second guess slavery whites, I mean, who are, you know, indifferent to it or hostile to it, that there seems to be hope, but that I think Brown wants to cultivate and maybe has some hope that some of these forces could develop a more coherent anti-slavery movement from within the South. Obviously that doesn't happen, you know, the vast majority of the Southern population defended slavery in the Civil War uh, as soldiers or in some other way, even if they weren't owners. And about 30% of white Southerners owned slaves, uh, or families, I should say. Anyway, chapter 17. Oh, here we get another quote by Thomas Jefferson. This is called Retaliation. Um, so Mary's put to work. Clotel sold off. Mary is kept behind and put to work. And so this is, again, revealing the contradiction of slavery, that one will enslave and torture and abuse their own children. And then we get the Thomas Jefferson quote, which Brown says was from the sp in a speech against slavery in the legislature of Virginia. But I swear this was in notes from the state of Virginia. Maybe he recycled it for notes of the state of Virginia, but I thought this was from that. But he quotes it as a long bit, but it says, The whole commerce between master and slave is perpetual, perpetual exercise of the most boisterous passions, most unremitting despotism on the one part, and degrading submission on the other. End quote. That, I'm pretty sure, is in notes from the state of Virginia. Then we have chapter 18, The Liberator, which is about Georgina's plan for the slave she inherits from her father, Mr. Peck, when he dies. But... It's also, we see the limits of this, that she can't really imagine just freeing them outright. She gets involved with colonization and she's thinking of ways to basically send these people to Liberia. Um, and Brown then presents his argument against colonization. Now that was a common argument. You even heard it in the Civil War years. You know, the idea, we'll free the slaves and send them to Africa. Um, and black people often said, no, this is our home. We helped build this country. Um, and we paid for our place in America, you know, through our slavery. And, and, and so we earned this country. Uh, and Brown repeats this argument about black achievement in America. Something is going to do in depth in a book called The Black Man, which is his, his, his book of biographies he wrote later in his life. So anyways, that's so even Georgina, who is presented in a fairly sympathetic way, she has her limits of how far she's going to go in this effort to free the slaves. The ones she she can free anyways. Um, 
so then we get to chapter 19, The Escape of Clotel. Um, so this is a, a f I think this is a fairly detailed chapter because we get, uh, yeah, she ends up meeting this person, William, uh, who, you know, she ends up being a, his lover. So we've got another kind of romantic relationship that's fall short of marriage. Uh, of course, they can't be married. They're slaves. But, you know, she's forced to resist the advances of her new master, uh, which are also sexual. Uh, again, something Brown constantly wants to remind us of. But eventually she escapes with this man, Williams, dressing up as a man um, and and trying to live as a, as, a, as a free person. Now, Williams eventually escapes and we get his story of, of freedom which might be a stand-in for some of Brown's experiences, especially because you see Williams later on goes to Europe. So there's uh, some parallel, I think, between Williams and, and Brown himself. But Clotel is not going to embrace her freedom because she's going to go return to the South to try to free Mary in some way. Next, chapter 20, is a true Democrat. Um, this is about Henry Morton, uh, Althesa's wife, or husband, I mean. And he becomes an anti-slavery advocate, and this allows Brown to basically put into his voice, through Morton's voice, uh, a d dissertation on the nature of despotism, a philosophical exploration. You know, Henry Morton's educated. He's got a philosophical background, so he's going to make a more systematic philosophical case about the nature of despotism and he does that in in this chapter so the point is morton becomes a essentially an anti-slavery advocate himself then we have uh chapter 21 the christian's death uh so he starts here brown starts in this chapter with discussion of the origin of american slavery the historical story of the of the original slaves brought to the night to the colonies and then he talks about the dilemma of free slaves so this kind of repeats the old the old dilemma of of that Georgina's facing is what to do is colonization the proper solution right and obviously Brown doesn't think colonization is is the solution now nevertheless uh, although he doesn't think much of this colonization stuff uh, Georgiana is presented in a positive way. He writes of her, if true greatness consists in doing good to mankind, then was Georgina Carlton an ornament to human nature. Who can think of the broken hearts made whole of sad and dejected countenances now beaming with contentment and joy of the mother offering her freeborn babe to heaven and of the father whose cup of joy seems overflowing in the presence of his father where none can molest or make him afraid. Make him afraid. Oh, that God might give more such per persons to take the whip-scarred Negro by the hand and raise him to the level of our common humanity. End quote. Next, we have uh, chapter 22 called the, A Ride in a Stagecoach, which is about Clotel's efforts to go to Virginia. Um, and here, I think Brown makes a case, there's more on religion in this chapter, and I think he makes a pretty direct case for the moral superiority of Northerners, uh, which... I'm not sure fits all his other arguments because he's also at the same time careful to point out that this is a national sin, that it is something like that's why is he used Vermonters to get involved in this relationship with Althesa, maybe to make it easier for them to become him for Morton to become an abolitionist. 
you know, but also that no matter where you are in the United States, you, you're touched by and you're, you're benefiting from slavery. Um, but he still wants to make the case here of the, of the moral superiority. He's saying, um, essentially, the Southerner has to admit that he was beat by the Yankee. And, and he's saying in terms of moral uh, authority. All right. Chapter 23, Truth Stranger Than Fiction. I'll say, so this is, it's kind of our, our conclusion to Althea's story. Um, and it's, it's a pretty sad one because she's, she's passing as white, you know, basically living as a white woman. She's got two kids with this, this uh, man, this, uh, this Dr. Morton. And... And she dies. She dies of like a fever, as does Morton. So they both die. And this means the children basically be, are proper are, are, are the property of the estate. And her children end up being sold off. Uh, so it's pretty... Some rough stuff in this chapter. And they were sold for quite a lot. One was for 3000 the other for 2300 but we need not add that had these young girls been sold for mere house servants or field hands, they would not have brought one half the sums they did. The fact that they were the granddaughters of Thomas Jefferson no doubt increased their value in the market. Here were two of the softer sex accustomed to the fondest, fondest indulgences, surrounded all the time by refinements of life, and with all the timidity that such a life could produce, bartered away like cattle in Smith Field Market. End quote. So basically they're going to be uh, concubines is what Ron is saying. That's their fate. They got that refinement. They don't have that history of being slaves, so it makes them more, you know, more attractive to certain predatory men. Essentially, I, I guess I, I got to come out and say it, right? That this novel is about creepy older men preying on uh, beautiful young women who can't fight back and can't resist. There's a, there is this creepiness to it. All right, next we got uh, The Arrest, Chapter 24. Basically, Clotel is arrested as a fugitive slave. I think it's in Washington, uh, D.C. Uh, chapter 25 is called Death is Freedom, and this is just about the su eventual suicide of Clotel. Uh, she realizes she can't escape her situation or liberate Mary. Um, then we have, uh, I guess, just uh, three chapters. Um Dealing that all kind of go together. Chapter 26, The Escape, 27, The Mystery, and 28, The Happy Meeting. And these these chapters sort of are coded to the story. They, they follow Mary, uh, Clotel's daughter, who's still in slavery, but she eventually um, is able to escape. Um, and... And he basically becomes a lover of, of Mary as she gets older. So uh, this is set a few years later. And they eventually escape together. It's kind of very similar to the story of, of Clotel herself. Um, so she's able to escape, and but they, 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 they lose contact with one another, and they finally reunite in France, right? Which, of course, Brown spent a lot of his life abroad. Um, so while she's there... While Mary runs into George in, in, in France, I think it is, 
Um, she tells her story how she married this other man. So she's out of reach to George, but it's still a happy meeting. They, they get to reunite. So that's it. A lot going on in this book, to say the least. Uh, but the real way we should come at this, I think, it's, it's hard to argue any other way, is that this is a book about gender and gender in slavery and the complexities of sexuality, of attraction, of desire, uh, and uh, negotiating strategies, different strategies women could take based on the attributes they, they had, uh, based on their age, um, but also the tragedy and the limits of, of resistance in those strategies. Um, yeah, for a short novel, there's a whole lot going on in this, this book. So I, I really think we should read it. Um, and I hope you did, and I, or I hope you pick it up after this and, and, and enjoy it as I did. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. Uh, obviously, thematically, there's a lot of things I mentioned throughout this, this episode. I'm not going to go back and repeat it all, but it's, it's all there for you. Do, do read this book. I think it's one of the best novels about slavery I read. And just in terms of its like thematic thickness and, and political and power and, and kind of persuasiveness. Um, all right. Um, next, two, two episodes on the American fugitive in Europe. This is basically a travel log um, where Brown ended up spending five years I think away from his family which I can um, sympathize with right now um, in England and France Scotland might go to a few other places basically connecting with the anti-slavery movement in in Europe but also traveling so we get a lot of travel log kind of stuff like going to the grave going to this castle going to see in this side of London whatever but we also get his discussion of of his participation in the anti-slavery movement and a little bit of the contrast between Europe and America, a little bit of the Tocqueville kind of stuff. Um, I'm not going to have quite as much to say about this as I think I did Clotel because as I'm reading it, I, I realize there's really not that much about slavery. This really is a travel log. And I think I came at it wrong. Like, I think if I were to reread this, which I'm not sure I would, but if I were to reread this book, then American Fugitive in Europe, I would come at it more straight as a travel log because the title's, kind of distracted me. I thought American fugitive in Europe is going to be about really slavery and the experience of being uh, someone who's still owned, right? Living, living abroad. But that doesn't come up that much. Uh, it comes up here and there. It's not a back burner thing either though, but it's, it's not, it's not the, the heart of the book is that I, that I thought it would be. But anyways, nevertheless, it's a, it's a, it, it, fit, it fits better into the genre of travel mode. So that's what we'll be doing next. At least a couple episodes on that. It's about 200 pages long. So that's going to be it for now. But if you have any thoughts about Clotel, um, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thank you for, for listening. And I'll see you next time. Well, you won't be worried when When the sun go down When the sun go down You'll never be worried when When the sun go down When the sun go down I'll go out of